afternoon. It is a pleasure to be here with you today. Can you guys hear me in the back? Okay, a little louder. Wireless microphone number. Is that louder? Is that louder? <laughs> All right, I'll try to speak loudly. All right, but yes, hello. Nice to be here. I remember when the third week of October back in the day that I got to have a few days off from school and all my teachers went to teachers convention. And I was like, na 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 boo boo. But now I'm older and wiser and realize that they were just happy to have a couple days away from all of us students. So, <laughs> joke's on me. But I want to give a little bit of background on myself so that you'll have a better idea of where my perspective on this topic is coming from. Um, I'm originally from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, but I spent time in almost every physical landscape that the good Lord created, um, from Sioux Center, Iowa, where I attended Door College, to the sprawling mountains and volcanoes of Guatemala for three years, to the suburbs of Chicago for two years, to now living in the heart of Milwaukee, where my family has been for the past three and a half years. So I've had the privilege of attending um, Christian schools from kindergarten all the way through college, and I'm just really deeply grateful to have been fed so much of the Bible, as well as to have had so many loving Christians pouring into me throughout my childhood. Um, I was a first grade teacher for a mere two years when we lived in Guatemala. Um, but with my husband, Colin, being a teacher for the past 10 years, and with our oldest now going to school, um, it still feels like education takes up most of our mental energy as a family. Um, and as far as our life now, um, Colin works at, and my daughter attends a publicly funded Christian school. Um, Wisconsin has a voucher system that allows students to attend a variety of schools that aren't necessarily in their district or in their budget. Um, sadly, Milwaukee is a very racially segregated city. So the neighborhood where we live and where our school is located is 95% black. Um, not only that, but roughly 42% of the families in our zip code live below the poverty line. So these dynamics of both race and socioeconomics make our presence in our neighborhood rather complicated. Um, my hope is when I talk about my neighborhood is to always try and build bridges of understanding between the world that I grew up in and the world where we now live in. Um, by day, I stay home with our children. And by night, I am an author and a speaker so two years ago, my first book was published called, called Here Goes Nothing, An Introvert's Reckless Attempt to Love Her Neighbor. Um, that's right, I'm an introvert. So instead of coming to talk to me after class, I prefer that you text me instead. JK, LOL. But my faith in Jesus and my experiences in a variety of places are why I'm excited to talk to you about neighboring today. Um, I have five principles that will guide the way that we disciple our students to become good neighbors. Um, and I also want to encourage you, you can check out the handout that's linked to this um, class because there's a variety of resources there too that can help as well. Um, before we completely dive in, I need to make one very important disclaimer, is that all the stuff I'm about to share with you are not promises, they are principles. So I cannot promise 
that if you simply follow these five steps that your class is guaranteed to become champions of the second commandment. Okay, so if you try all these things and little Bobby is still a reigning terror of a hostile regime in your classrooms, don't call me. <laughs> okay, let's get started. This first principle might seem obvious and kind of lame, but it is by far the most important. It is truly, truly where neighboring begins. And that is walking with Jesus. Now, to give us a bit of a framework here and for our other four principles, we're going to talk about that most famous passage in the entire Bible about neighboring, which is the Good Samaritan, found in Luke 10. Um, I'm guessing, hoping that we've all heard this story once or twice in our lives. But the reason that Jesus told this story in the first place was because an expert of the law, a lawyer, and a religious man asked what he could do to inherit eternal life. Now, he wasn't genuinely asking for information. He was looking for a chance to both take Jesus down and puff himself up. But Jesus was never the type to get caught up in people's games, of course. So he actually, he turned the question back on this expert of the law. And he asked him, well, what does the law say? And the lawyer answered, love God and love your neighbor. And Jesus said, yep. But the lawyer wasn't satisfied. Because he wanted to prove that he was fully justified by his good works and his obedience to God's laws. So he asked, well, well, who is my neighbor? And so then Jesus tells the story. He says, a man was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. On his way, he's robbed, beaten, stripped, and he's left for dead. A priest passes him, but crosses the road and keeps walking. A Levite passes him, but crosses the road and keeps walking. And then a Samaritan comes, and he actually stops. He carefully tends to the traveler's wounds, and he even pays for medical attention at an inn to help this man recover from his injuries. When we hear this story, we often want to jump to personal application right away. We want to think about how we can follow the example of this good Samaritan. But before we do that, before we identify with a Samaritan, we need to actually identify with this traveler, with this man that was left to die on the side of the road. In his article called You Are Not the Good Samaritan, J.D. Greer asks, what if the Good Samaritan is Jesus who put himself into the path of danger and took upon himself the suffering that we had caused ourselves, and poured out his own resources to save us? What if we were bleeding to death on the side of the road, and our only hope was an act of free grace from an enemy who did not owe us anything? That's a really powerful thought, isn't it? Okay, this parable it wasn't about giving the lawyer another rule that he had to follow. It was about giving him a whole new reality, a reality of this radical grace. And so Greer explains that it's not until we embrace this truth 
the tr this truth that until we can become givers of that radical grace to other people, to our neighbors. And so transferring that thought to our classrooms, okay, neighboring is not just this list of rules that we create for our students to follow. Okay, it's not this checklist of good deeds that we cross off around the holidays. Okay, it's more than asking God what he wants us to do. And that's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that even if we speak in tongues and have prophetic powers and are super smart and we give all our stuff to the poor, okay, even if we do all of these good or neighborly things, okay, but if we don't have love, we are just loud and annoying and we've actually gained nothing through our work. Okay, neighboring is more about asking who God wants us to be. Okay, it's about our hearts being transformed when we recognize with grateful hearts what Jesus first did for us. Okay, and then out of that heart of gratitude, we walk so closely with God that we begin to reflect his character to the world around us. We begin to reflect the fruit of the Spirit. John 15 goes as far as to say that we can't bear good fruit in our lives unless we remain in Jesus, walk with Jesus. We must follow the first commandment to love God with our whole hearts before we can genuinely follow the second commandment, which is to love other people. And how do we get to know God? Okay, how do we walk with Jesus? Okay, we first feed on God's word. And obviously, this is the exact privilege that we have as Christian educators. Um, but I want to go beyond that a little bit here, too. Because even after 18 years of Christian education, um, I need to admit that there were a few ways that I was still misreading and mistreating, misinterpreting the Bible. Okay, there were times that I would act like Scripture was supposed to be like a GPS for my personal life. Like, maybe if I just magically open the Bible, a verse will pop out that will tell me who I should marry or where I should go to college or where I should apply for a job. Okay, I opened up Psalm 23, which says, he makes me lie down in green pastures and just assumed that meant I was supposed to go to college in the cornfields of Iowa. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But I had to relearn that the Bible is more than a bunch of true yet disconnected stories. Okay, it's more than a bunch of wise sayings that I can turn into cute squares on Instagram. Okay, the Bible is not a book about me at all. Okay, it's first a book about God. It's a book about his creativity, his power, his justice, his mercy, grace, love, and holiness. And so... When we're teaching our students the Bible, we need to make sure that they understand this larger framework that re-centers Christ as the focal point of Scripture. Okay, some of you elementary teachers might be familiar with the Jesus Storybook Bible. Okay, but I, I love how it says so well that every story whispers his name. And this, this decentering is very important in terms of neighboring. Um, because neighboring requires so much laying down of our own self-centeredness. Okay, I know that I need to be reminded often that I am not the axis that the universe revolves around. 
and that includes the way that I had been misreading the Bible. And that doesn't mean, hear me out, doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't apply to us today. Okay, that's still very relevant. Okay, but before we jump to personal application, we need to ask what we learned about God in those passages. Okay, it's when we better know Him as our Creator that we're better able to understand ourselves and our purpose and our identity as His creation. Um, one of the books that I suggest in the list of resources in the handout is called Women of the Word by Jen Wilkin. Um, I promise you that this book is not only for women. Okay? Everyone can glean some really, really good stuff from it. But if any of what I just talked about sounds familiar to you or you'd like to read more on that topic, I really suggest that book. And I just want to be sure that I emphasize with this practical point and with all the practical points under each principle that we cannot push any of this onto our students unless we are making a priority of this ourselves. I recently reached out to Professor Jacobs of Alberno College asking for some resources related to this session. And in her email back she wrote, my primary concern is that we typically think of fixing and changing kids when it is the adults who need to be examples of the word. Okay, children are learning how to be by watching us. She said, I am 100% opposed to giving educators tools that imply an easy fix for broken kids. Teachers need to do the hard work. It is hard because, it's, because it is convicting. And then under that paragraph, she dropped Matthew 18, verse 6, which is kind of a doozy. She said, but if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Okay, yikes, right? Okay, but what an important reminder again that discipleship isn't about forcing certain behaviors on our students, but making sure that we are, by God's grace, exemplifying those behaviors ourselves. All right, second principle. Um, I realize this is going to go pretty deep here, so hang on to your panties, okay, or your boxers. Sorry to be so sexist there. But if we want students to be good neighbors, we need to help them to develop a theology of suffering. And what I mean by that in its most basic context is that we need to acknowledge that we live in a world where suffering exists and help our students to see the way that suffering is also woven into our, the narrative of our faith. So let's return to the parable of the Good Samaritan and discuss that. Um, like I said, it's just tempting to just jump right to the end of the story, you know, to the Samaritan's acts of mercy and to personal application. But if, if we skip the ugly truths of this story, we actually miss out on what makes it so beautiful in the first place. And the ugly truth is that we live in a world where theft, destruction, and murder exist. Okay, we live in a world where some people can and choose to look the other way. And sometimes, like the priest and the Levite, we try to ignore this uncomfortable truth. 
It reminds me of the summer when I was visiting my parents' cottage in northern Michigan. Um, my sisters and I decided to take a nice walk outside, and we came across this sign here. It might be a little bit hard to read, but it says, The Pearly Gates. Okay, that's right. We found the Pearly Gates. Okay, which, in a strange turn of events, was even marked with an American flag. Okay, my sisters and I didn't know whether we should be elated or super disappointed. Okay, we stopped and looked around a little bit like, Jesus, you here? <laughs> and that ridiculous sighting reminded me of the ways that we try to convince ourselves that this life is as good as it gets. Okay, when in reality, this life is literally the closest to hell that Christians will ever be. And yet there's often this pressure within middle-class Christianity to bring only our prettiest selves to church, okay? And to leave our sufferings and our temptations and the privacy of our homes so that we won't expose our janky, pearly gates for what they really are. I was 26 years old before I felt personally affected by intense suffering. And that was when my second baby was stillborn. And it, and it wasn't that before our baby died that I had never heard about bad stuff happening in the world or never dealt with my own insecurities. But I had 26 whole years before the first time suffering ever felt so horribly intimate. And now that I live in a place where we witness poverty, trauma, racial segregation, shootings, drugs, mass incarceration. Hey, I'm just taken aback by the privilege I had as a child to be able to just close the door, shut off the TV to the world's pain. It's a privilege to be able to ask ourselves as caretakers, how much should we tell our students about the world? But that's a question that I really believe that we need to grapple with. And I must say that I'm all about leaving space for nuance when it comes to this. I won't stand here and pretend that's always an, a very easy question to answer. Okay, on the one hand, you have wisdom like this that we shouldn't ignore as students become less innocent to the world around them. There are definitely age-appropriate ways um, to talk to our students about suffering. But on the other hand, I wonder if there are ways that we've held back too much. Okay, and how much has our holding back made us miss opportunities to teach our kids from a biblical viewpoint? Okay, instead of letting the streets teach them when they leave our nests someday. And how much has our holding back about hard stuff left our students' faith and our own extremely fragile. Okay, when our students leave our classrooms, will they only be prepared to either chase their dreams or to settle down to the glory of God? Okay, will they also be prepared to pick up their crosses and to face suffering to the glory of God? Will they be prepared to recognize their neighbors who are suffering? And I'm not saying that we need to do a better job toughening up our kids before they go out into this tough world. Okay, I'm saying that we need to do a better job learning 
how tough that we aren't. Because that's the thing about having a life where most of it goes well for a really long time. Okay, we build this idea that we are self-sufficient. Okay, we adopt a very false sense of control over our own lives. Okay, and our faith becomes fragile through this because it feels like, you know what, I'm doing just fine on my own. Okay, if life is so good, then why would we need God? Why would we long for anything but life here on earth? And if we aren't willing to acknowledge the reality of suffering, what we do in regards to neighboring is that we actually isolate the people in our lives in need of mercy. Okay, through the Good Samaritan, Jesus defines neighbor as someone in need of mercy, okay, or someone who shows mercy. But when we pretend that we are immune from the world's brokenness, or we train our students that they will be immune as long as they are obedient, what we're saying is that our Christian faith has no room for those in need of mercy. So let's talk about how we can apply that to our classrooms. Um, this really begins by learning to speak the truth in love to our students. Offline and away from social media, our culture is actually more often a culture of silence when it comes to taboo and difficult subjects. Okay, but experts say that when kids see hard things or they are experiencing hard things or being taught hard things, their biggest needs are care from a, um, sorry, their biggest needs are comfort from a caring adult, and as well as the language that they need to express what they are experiencing or what they are seeing. And so what we can offer our students is to start by giving very straightforward and honest answers that state the realities of the world that we live in. And when students come to us with hard questions from their lives or from what they are seeing in the news, Okay, we need to lay off the metaphoric language that tries to sugarcoat stuff. Okay, when someone dies, we don't say things like, well, that person fell asleep. Because okay, it's really confusing to kids and also a lie. <laughs> okay, and it's, it's okay if our only honest answer is, I don't know, or this is hard. Uh, if you are an elementary teacher or administrator, I encourage you to look up the videos that I linked to the handout as well. Um, that show the way that Mr. Rogers' neighborhood talked with little kids. Okay, he had a really special way of addressing children, both gently and honestly. And he was willing to talk about really hard stuff, okay, stuff like divorce, the death of a pet, and even the assassination of JFK. All right, but after we acknowledge reality, okay, we can follow that up by what we believe to be true based on scripture as well as saying something that shows compassion <coughs> towards students' fears. Okay, we teach our students that the pain of this world and our hope in Jesus can coexist. Okay, that although we believe that someday there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, okay, today there is still death and mourning and crying and pain. And being honest about that pain does not erase our belief that God is good. Okay, my pastor said it so well. He said, 
God's love is not a bubble. It is a shield. Okay, we should prepare students that God's love does not protect us and our neighbors from all harm and pain, but it definitely helps us battle through the harm and the pain that we will face. Now, I understand that it can be tricky to discern when it is your job to share something with a student and when it, when it is their guardian's job or their caretaker's job. Hey, I was in fourth grade when I raised my hand and asked my Bible study teacher, what does it mean when the Bible says that Abraham lay with Sarah? <laughs> you can guess what my teacher said. Go ask your dad. <laughs> hey, I will say that was a very enlightening car ride home, and now forever associate sex with puzzle pieces. Thanks, Dad. <laughs> but, hey, that's why Christian education is viewed as being in partnership in the gospel with parents. Okay, so be sure to communicate with parents about how you approach a tough question in your class. Okay, send a note home when a tough question comes up. Explain what was shared in class and ask her to continue that discussion at home. And finally, as a practical point, um, try your best to include the language of lament in both chapel and in your classrooms. Use prayers, use scripture passages, use songs songs that demonstrate lament, that demonstrate crying out to God in pain. Okay, the book of Psalms is not only full of verses that say things like, shout for joy to the Lord all the earth, worship the Lord with gladness. Okay, there's also Psalms that end by saying things like, darkness is my closest friend. Psalms that end in utter despair. Okay, look up Psalm 88 sometime and find a chance to share that one in your classroom, I dare you. But incorporating this language of lament into our worship or Bible class or discussion about current events, any of those things, okay, this demonstrates the way that God acknowledges our suffering and he welcomes us to bring it to him. Okay, it's a very, very powerful tool. All right, number three. Helping students recognize the image of God in every person that they meet. Thanks to our country's current state of extreme political polarization, as well as the physical distance that social media provides between us and other people, okay, this is actually a very hard principle to grasp. Because a lot of people are angry about a lot of different things these days, and it's hard to even see other people as human beings anymore. Okay, they're just baseless usernames on the other side of the screen. But unfortunately for our egos, Jesus doesn't leave space for us to choose who we show mercy to. Okay, when the expert of the law asked Jesus who his neighbor was, he was asking him during a time when the Israelites' very widest definition of neighbor was other Israelites, okay, other people of the same nationality. So when Jesus claims that it was a Samaritan who was the neighborly one, Jesus just basically blew everybody's mind. Okay, the Jews hated Samaritans. Okay, although they were geographically neighbors, 
they thought of Samaritans as complete foreigners because of their different beliefs. They avoided touching anything a Samaritan touched. They even used the word Samaritan as a slur. Okay, someone cuts them off while riding their donkey and you better believe they shook their fist and yelled, you Samaritan. But Jesus constantly subverted his own Jewish culture okay, in these man-made laws to show just how much he values each and every human life. Okay, he dignified the marginalized. He spoke with Samaritans. He touched lepers. He modeled that love is very costly. And that begs us to very humbly ask ourselves, who is my Samaritan? Who is my enemy? I bet it wouldn't take each of us more than seven seconds to think of someone. Okay, I know I only need three seconds, and I'm like, yup, that person is the worst. <laughs> hey, maybe it's a political or a religious enemy. Maybe it's a personal rival or someone who just super annoyed you. Okay, maybe it's your student. Gasp. Okay, but what if you had to sit down by that person and look them in the eyes and take their hands and say, you are an image bearer of God. He created you in his image just as much as he created me in his image. Okay, as an introvert, I, for one, would feel incredibly uncomfortable with all that eye contact and touching. But I also think that it would make me, make it a lot harder for me to hate whoever was sitting across from me. And it wouldn't mean that I would suddenly agree with them, okay, but I hope that it would help me see another person sitting there as a human being worth being treated with respect. Because sometimes, as Jeff Mannion said, sometimes God tells us to love someone not because that person matters to us, but simply because that person matters to God. And that's a really that's a hard truth to swallow, I think. Now, practically speaking, um, I realize I'm bringing up the Bible again. Sorry, not sorry. But with this point, I want to highlight a growing problem. The temptation nowadays in our very much celebrity Christian culture that we have is to just look up whoever our favorite blogger is and see what they're saying instead of doing the hard work of digging into scripture ourselves. And so the temptation is to base our beliefs on our feelings or whatever the latest religious fad on Twitter might be. Okay, ask, instead of asking every single time, well, what does the Bible say? And that being said, that diving into the Bible should deepen and clarify our beliefs. The flip side is that spending time with other people, no matter their beliefs, should feed our compassion toward them as human beings. Because it's really easy to see a few things on the surface of people's lives and assume that we actually know the whole story. Okay, but the truth is, is that we probably do not know a lot of the pain that a person is carrying or even all the complex nuances 
that are tied to their beliefs that we might not agree with. And this doesn't mean that we excuse immoral behavior or that we allow abuse from our enemies. It just means that when we look out into the world, we take compassion on the masses of people who are like sheep without a shepherd. Okay, as Jesus often described the people that he taught and that he cared for. Okay, we learn to separate the issue from the image bearers behind that issue. And I'll try to offer an example of this as best as I can. Um, my daughter Jocelyn is six years old, and last year she, <clears throat> excuse me, she came home from kindergarten one day, and while eating her afternoon snack, she just all nonchalantly goes, boys don't like boys, do they, mommy? Where did this come from? Okay, my daughter is super into princess culture, so I knew that she was talking about romantic affection here, okay, not just friendship. But because of the weightiness of that subject, of this subject, I felt very tempted in that moment to just, you know, brush the discussion aside and say something like, no, honey, boys don't like boys. And instead, I remembered, okay, how do I speak the truth in love here? Okay, how do I state the reality, the very, <laughs> the reality of the world that we live in? Okay, how do I point to what we believe based on scripture? And how do I add compassion to this topic with her? Now, the conversation did not last long because she is six and probably saw a squirrel or something. Okay, but I said something like, well, actually, there are some boys who do like boys. But here is what we believe about the way that God created boys and girls and how he designed marriage to be between a man and a woman. And you know what? Even if we know some boys who like other boys or other people who don't believe this about the Bible, okay, they are still made in the image of God and we still treat them with kindness and respect. My daughter doesn't know it yet, but she does know some boys who like other boys. And those people that struggle with same-sex attraction, they're not just object lessons for me to talk about with you today. Okay, they're, they're real people. They're the faces and flesh and blood behind the headlines and the arguments. And so really this point goes back to reminding our students over and over who our actual enemy is, which is not other image bearers. Okay? At its core, warfare, our warfare is spiritual, not physical. Our enemy is the devil and his constant scheming and destroying. Okay, principle number four. Helping students learn from perspectives that are different from their own. Now, I don't know what your experiences were like growing up, but I grew up in a community where most people looked like me and had similar cultural values as I did. Sometimes seeing a person of a minority race or from a different culture felt like actually spotting a unicorn. And even though I've now spent seven years in cultures that are different from my own, um, I didn't fully realize just how white my world was. But a few years ago, I read a book called White Awake. And in the first chapter, the author was challenged by his mentor to carefully catalog all the primary voices that informed and shaped his thoughts and values. 
So he wrote down his closest friends, the people he looked to for advice, the preachers, teachers, and theologians he relied on for spiritual guidance, as well as the authors of the books that he was reading. And then after he wrote down that list, he um, was told to note the cultural backgrounds and ethnicities that they represented. And he described this exercise as a great awakening for him, learning to see just how white all of his personal and theological influences in his life had been. And since feeling a similar awakening, I've been trying to do a better job diversifying the Christian voices that I'm listening to and learning from. And I realize that some people might be hearing this and thinking like, ugh, like what's the big deal? Our identity is not based on our race. Are you just one of those self-hating white people? Aren't we all one race, the human race? And it's biblically true that our identity and our worth are not based on skin color. Praise Jesus. But a few weeks ago, I attended an event at a local church to talk about how racially divided the city of Milwaukee has become. And at this event, a black pastor shared that he spent many years in public schools and six years in the Marine Corps. But it wasn't until he attended a conservative Christian seminary in the Midwest that he experienced racism. A black woman there told the crowd that she waited to wear her hair in its natural form for nine whole months at her new job because she previously worked in places where she'd been called ghetto for wearing it that way. Another black gentleman shared that when he was born, the white nurse referred to him as an it. And so yes, it is very true that our identity is not based on our skin color, but that doesn't mean that a person's history and experiences are not affected by their skin color. This was not the uh, secular media trying to cause more division. Okay, these were, these were Christians. These were some of our black brothers and sisters in Christ being honest about their very real experiences that they've had in their darker skin. And as the church, it's our duty and it's our privilege to listen to each other, to mourn together, and to carry each other's burdens. Okay, we don't want to ignore the pain of the people who have not felt welcomed into predominantly white spaces. But the beauty of this very, very hard thing right now is that the church is the one place where we should be able to have very fruitful conversations um, about the racial divides plaguing our country. Okay, in Christ, we get to unify beyond our differences while also acknowledging that we are a group of people that is made of many different skin colors, languages, and nationalities. Okay, and that's a really beautiful thing. It's not about me feeling guilty for being white. Okay, it's more um, about recognizing that if my only input in the body of Christ is from other white Christians, that I'm missing out on all the other great perspectives, talents, and leadership that make the body of Christ so great. Okay, I'm missing out on learning from all the black and brown pastors, singers, artists, theologians, historians, and mathematicians who have important stuff to say too. Um, but being willing to listen to different perspectives is not only important within the church. Okay, we need to be willing to venture outside our circles because this is part of our missional mindset as Christians. 
Okay, and it's part of being able to participate in civil dialogue. Okay, when we take a humble posture of curiosity to the people around us, we're better able to develop relationships where we can actually share the gospel as well. Okay, but we won't be able to do that if we never escape our own echo chambers. And sometimes that will lead us down harder roads than we'd like. Okay, but the first choice that the Good Samaritan had to make in order to cross paths with his neighbor in need of mercy was the choice to actually travel the Jericho Road. Okay, this was a road that was just notorious for its danger and its violence and oppression. Until um, the 19th century, people even paid safety money to local guides in order to travel it. Okay, but we need to remind ourselves and our students that being a neighbor will not always be comfortable. Okay, a few years ago, we invited our neighbors to stay with us because they had been evicted from their apartment a few doors down from us. But not only did they move in, so did the bed bugs that came from the, the apartment that they were evicted from. Okay, and if you've ever gone through getting rid of bed bugs, you understand that it is a process. Okay, we've gone through bed bugs twice now. Okay, and actually when I put my kids to bed at night, we have this adorable little routine where I say something like, good night, don't let the bed bugs bite. Okay, and they peek their heads out of their beds and they say, you either, mama. Mm -hmm. And we all smile and I close the door and then I actually want to yell, but seriously, Lord, don't let the bed bugs bite. <laughs> Your will be done unless it involves bed bugs. Then I quit. <laughs> okay, it was, it was uncomfortable. And now we have another young woman living with us. And this past summer, we got to teach her how to drive. Friends, that was so terrifying. <laughs> I even wrote about it in my journal. I wrote, Monday, July 8, 2019. She turns without using the brakes, and I'm about to lose it. I squeeze an invisible stress ball the entire time. Jesus, take the wheel. I am too young to die. <laughs> okay, it was uncomfortable. Okay, and speaking as the only white woman who lives on my block, at times the cultural differences with our neighbors have felt awkward and they felt uncomfortable. But praise the Lord that we are not called to live a shallow life that is only for the sake of our own comfort. When we are intentional and when we do the hard work of connecting with people outside of our usual groups, it will be difficult and it will sometimes be awkward. Okay, but that discomfort, it doesn't mean that it's wrong. Okay, it just means that some of the power is finally being shared. Okay, practically speaking. Um, first, we have to encourage students and ourselves to break out of the enclave mentality. Okay, and that starts by being willing to have some of those hard conversations about race, ethnicity, and racial history. Okay, it's, and it's never, I wanna encourage you, it's never too early to talk about that. Okay, studies show that 
Children as young as two years old use race to reason about people's behaviors and even use race to choose their playmates. But studies also show that explicit conversations with five to seven-year-olds about interracial friendships can dramatically improve their attitudes toward race in as little as a single week. Okay, we should make a point to really to give our students opportunities to connect with people of diverse backgrounds. Okay, whether it's through something as simple as pen pals or hosting regular events with other schools in your area. Okay, whatever it is, the point should be to focus on building relationships. Okay, giving students a chance to see, hear, and feel from a different person's perspective. Okay, and in our own classrooms, we can talk about how there's always room for one more friend in our circle. Okay, how it's okay to be closer with some people than others, okay, but not being so possessive of friends that we aren't, uh, that we aren't welcoming of other people. Okay, this means that it's okay to let go of the BFF language too. Um, second, diversifying students' media and literary intake. And I don't mean only diversifying who is in the pictures. Okay, I mean diversifying the author, singer, or artist of the materials that we're bringing into our classrooms too. Okay, and this point is also about fully welcoming the students in our classrooms who are from a racial minority. Okay, it, it's really important for kids to be able to see their physical bodies represented in a positive light, no matter their race. Okay, if anyone in this room wonders why movies like Black Panther or Crazy Rich Asians were such a big deal over the past couple years, it's because that it was finally a chance for so many people to see themselves represented in a major motion picture as the leaders, the heroes, the beauties, and the people of good moral character. Okay, that's important for kids of all races and all abilities, too. Um, and third, clearly reminding ourselves and our students that sometimes what we think is weird about someone is another person's normal. I'm talking about the food that we eat, the clothes we wear, the beauty standards that we look up to, the hairstyles that we do, holidays we celebrate, everything including the names that our parents give us. Okay, my daughter's predominantly African American city school. I can tell you there, there are not a lot of little girls named Emma and Chloe. Okay, but you will find some, some miracles, a Kalaya, a Denaya, also a Waikivion. Okay, that's our new normal. Okay, it's not weird, it's just different. It's different than what we grew up with. That's a beautiful thing. Alrighty, let's move on to our fifth and final principle today. We are going to talk about the church and its relationship to neighboring. Now, in my, in my strong personal opinion, I think that the tendency today is to stress our personal relationship with Jesus, but not to stress how each of us as individual Christians 
is actually part of something much bigger than any one of us. And part of me wants to blame social media for this, for making us like so individualistic and prone to like clamor for our own personal attention. But I also think that long before social media was invented, there were ways that church was being incorrectly defined as only an event on Sunday where we sat with our blood family and fed our own personal relationship with Jesus for an hour. Okay, maybe two hours. If you're really Christian. Okay, Ephesians 2, as well as a lot of other scripture passages, debunks this mentality completely. At the beginning of the chapter, Paul acknowledges how individuals are saved by grace through their personal faith in him and that God has planned out the good works that we will do in our lives. Okay, for it's by grace you have been saved through faith and you are created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Hopefully that sounds familiar. But if you read past verses 8, 9, to 10 through the rest of chapter 2, Paul goes on to talk about a much bigger picture. Okay, that God has a purpose for all of us together as his body to come together and to glorify him. He says we are all reconciled to Christ and that we are all members of the same Father's household and that we all make up one temple for the Holy Spirit to live in. And so while we and our students need to hear that we are special and unique and individually equipped for the work that God has prepared for us to do, we also need to hear that as an individual part of the body of Christ, we were not created to function on our own. Okay? We need all the other parts of the body in order to work as we were meant to. Otherwise, we are left with this whole Jesus but not church fad that's going around right now, okay? which is just an incomplete, beheaded version of the gospel. But the nice thing is that when we flip that narrative and we remember that our faith means being part of something bigger, it also takes so much of the pressure off of ourselves too. Okay, church is the reminder that our striving isn't for our own personal glory or success or accolades. It's about the greater flourishing of the church so that together we can give all the glory to Jesus. And this relates really closely to being a neighbor for a few reasons that I'll share in our practical points. And the first reason is that water is thicker than blood. Okay, the baptismal water of our faith is thicker than our earthly family's blood. And so according to the Bible, my family is first and foremost the church. And I promise you that I'm saying that as someone who is very close to my parents and my siblings. Okay, I really like them. But because I haven't lived within three hours of them since I turned 18, I've needed to broaden my definition of family to what the Bible actually says it is. Okay, I've had to rely on church through some really difficult moves, okay, through the loss of our baby, and through everyday life as a single person, and as a couple, and as a teacher, and now as a mom. And as neighbors, when we broaden our definition of family to include our church and our classrooms and every other Jesus freak around the world, 
And we're reminded, we're reminding the world around us that the gospel is very good news for everyone. Okay, no matter if they are married or single, have kids or don't have kids, no matter the brokenness that they experienced in their blood families or the distance that separates them, okay, this is where our theology of suffering allows us to acknowledge the many, many people who grew up without, loving, without a loving family. Okay, our theology of church reminds us that we all belong to a community where we can welcome each other and love each other, take care of each other, even be inconvenienced by each other. And this can be demonstrated in our classrooms by something as simple as the way we refer to our students. Okay, they're not only scholars or geniuses or future presidents or delinquents or whatever. Okay? As, um, as part of the church and as part of our classrooms that are an extension of the church, okay, they're part of our family. Okay? And of course, within a family, there's ways that we expect to treat each other. Um, second, remember that if church is our family, that we think of church as more than this building that we go to for 20 minutes, for a 20-minute sermon every Sunday. Okay, the early church in Acts reminds us that a healthy family is one that meets regularly, but also opens up our lives, our schedules, our dinner tables and our homes up for each other in ways that say we are family. And finally, we remember that there's strength in numbers, even if that number is only two or three, because fear is afraid of community. Being a neighbor can be scary, it can be intimidating, it can be really exhausting at times, but we don't have to try and be good neighbors all by ourselves. And we shouldn't try to be good neighbors all by ourselves. Not even the Good Samaritan tried to be a good neighbor by himself. Okay? He brought the traveler to an inn and asked the innkeeper to help look after him while he was away. Okay? He invited the community around him to do the work together. And we can do that too. Okay, as I mentioned earlier, when we talk to our children about hard things, they need that language to describe their experiences, as well as comfort from a caring adult, that there, there are people in their lives who will do everything they can to take care of them. Okay, Mr. Rogers said it this way. He said, when I was a boy and I would see scary things in the news, my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. You guys, that, that's the church. Okay, that's our classrooms. A healthy church family will be a place where the helpers are. Okay, a place where students will at times be able to follow the example of the Good Samaritan and at times be that traveler in need of mercy. Okay, at its very best, the church is God's gift of comfort during hard times. All right, that is all I have for you today, but before I send you away, I'd like to pray for all of you. So let's bow our heads together. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for the many people in this room who are just pouring their blood, sweat, and tears into their students, into raising 
the next generation of kids that we pray will love you with their whole heart. I thank you that they are willing to do work that can at times feel thankless and difficult. And I just pray that they will be encouraged through these couple days of learning and that you will just continue to strengthen them and give them what they need day by day as they work as teachers. In Jesus' sake, amen. All right, thank you for choosing this session. If you have further questions or thoughts, please come and talk to me or get in touch. Bye -bye.